We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my country. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Thank you for tuning in. Today on the podcast, I talk to Yulia Linares. She came to the U.S. from St. Petersburg, Russia, over 20 years ago. Yulia is an oncologist. She graduated from University of Chapel Hill. She did her residency at UCLA. And for years, she served blood and marrow transplant program at Cedars-Sinai Center in Los Angeles. And now she's the chief of the lymphoma service at Miami Cancer Institute. Basically, Yulia is a rock star doctor. And here's my conversation with her. And we have Yulia Linares with us on We The Aliens podcast. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. So how long have you been in the U.S. now? It's hard to believe, but it's been 22 years. And where did you come here from? I came from St. Petersburg, Russia. And after all these years, does the U.S. feel like home? It is my home, but it's also not my home. Uh, I have to say that I realized that um, I don't think I can acquire my home outside of St. Petersburg after many, many years of searching for a home. I lived in North Carolina. I lived in California. Now I'm in Miami. And at each place, I really tried to make my home. And I was looking forward to it becoming my home. And there was, I would say, there was a period of time where at each place I felt at home. But then that feeling dissolved. Uh, and I realized that it's really okay. It's really okay that I don't have a home outside of my native city, St. Petersburg. So I realized that I have to make maybe a five to seven year plan of where I live and I'm comfortable with that. And you know what I just realized while talking to you, I realized that I think with my personality, the place becomes my home when I leave it. So when I was in St. Petersburg, before I left it, I was kind of miserable. You know, it was like 98, you know, awful, awful economy, no future, you know, I had to work like three jobs. So I left and I was like, oh my gosh, I miss it so much. I miss my home. <laughs> so now I left LA, but I'm now familiar more with my psyche and like this whole thing. And I was like, well, you know, LA is always going to be my home. And the main thing is because my friends are there. I love my friends and, you know, my home is also where my friends are. Yeah. That's a big one. That's a huge one. Yeah. Anytime I think about leaving Los Angeles, I'm like, oh, I can't do this again. Yeah, yeah. It took so long. I don't know. Maybe it's me, but it took me a long time to find friends. And it takes time to build it. And it's just, I, I, I'm terrified of doing that over again. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely understand. When I left Russia, losing my friends was a tragedy. I mean, I had clinical depression for years. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I have to say I was like, semi or suicidal it was horrible it was awful until i learned how to keep long distance relationships with friends but i really like i literally talked to my friends in my sleep and i talked to them in my head i think to the point where i almost acquired some kind of psychic ability like i swear to god that like i think about people i talk to them in my head and then they call me and they're like oh this and that you know i'm like yeah i know you know so i think it's just you know 20 years of leaving away from people you love just teaches you to feel how they are through the distance. 100%. It's crazy. Wow. So let's back it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to unpack. Do you remember when Soviet Union fell apart? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was it like? 
Also, I was, as far as I remember, it may, may, might be a little bit imprecise, but as far as I remember, I was 12 years old. And actually, like, it was very exciting because, um, first of all, there were a lot of publications that came out that talked about uh, the crimes of Stalin and, you know, the truth about the violence and revolution and so forth. For example, one of them was uh, Aganyok, you know, the mm -hmm. little fire. And, um, you know, because I was a good Soviet child, when I was 12, I was interested in politics and current events, and I loved to read. And I just remember that, you know, my mom had all these magazines. And you know, when I was I, after school, I would come to her uh, job and just sit there, you know, and wait for her for several hours so we could go back home together. Um, and I would just read those uh, magazines for hours and so it was just so exciting to learn about all that history um, so wow. and you know and the fact that I could discuss it with my mom because it was new for her as well um, and then um, you know just also I mean in the Soviet Union we had just a couple of magazines you know for, for kids like young naturalist you know like Zvezdichka, uh, you know, the star or like some probably. And so I remember there were like some other things like, you know, more, more trashy things coming out, you know, like, I don't know, like magazines that were like, uh, you know, with nice paper and they had like recipes, you know, or right. like, you know, love stories, you know, some love accounts, you know, and also there was more sex out there, you know, on mm. TV and uh, also in all these magazines and newspapers, you know, so that was exciting. Um, mm. So interesting. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, and there were a lot of funny things, too. I mean, the funny story was uh, uh, when they, you know, I remember like some of the just very plain, like day-to-day, -day, um, you know, life hallmarks of prehistoric were, for example, um, the fact that suddenly we had shampoos, you know, before, like I, we didn't, like in my family, we didn't have money for shampoo because it was like three rubles, you know, and my mom made like hundred rubles or something like that, you know, right. it's very expensive. So, um, well, we were also extra poor. Uh, and, uh, and you only had like one or two kinds or something. And then, you know, they started to advertise this, you know, American, I presumed American shampoo, Vidal Sassoon. And it had, mm -hmm. and it said, oh, shampoo and conditioner in one flask. And, you know, we all knew what shampoo was, but the reality is like they were advertising it that way. No one in the Soviet Union knew what conditioner was because it just wasn't there. It just like wasn't around. And so I thought that conditioner was some kind of like built in hair dryer or like some electric device. And like I remember in the bottle, I kept looking for a conditioner. I'm like, where is it? <laughs> you know, it was also so damn expensive. It was like 10 rubles, which was like a lot, oh, wow. you know, but it was yeah. like a status symbol. You know, you got the Vidal Sassoon, you know. Uh, so, and then like, it took me a while to realize that conditioner was something in it. And then I was like thinking, why is that a big deal? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah. So That's like funny. silly, you know, silly little, little things, little things like that. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. We're living in this, you know, COVID world. And I remember in the beginning of, of it, I felt very shaken up and I thought, oh, probably my my parents felt similarly when soviet union was falling apart maybe because you didn't know what was going to happen next and what was gonna because i don't i don't really remember mm -hmm. i don't really remember it i was too young um but i was thinking that that sense of uncertainty that we're living in right now um connected me with their experience i was like oh that's probably how they mm -hmm. felt do you remember like 
Um, I think it was something like that up. Yeah, I think it was going in stages. And it also all depends on the personality of your parents, right? So my dad is a, was a very good Soviet person. You know, he loved communism and the fact that he had the designated salary. To this date, he works at the same place. He's worked for now for 60, 60 years, yeah. you know. So for him, it was a disaster. You know, he back then he was laid off, you know. Mm. So he was living on some like handout. I mean, all he had to eat, like literally he had three cups of tea a day with three sandwiches and then later i checked what he was eating and it turned out that what he thought was like some kind of human spam was like literally he was eating canned dog food you know so so you know so i actually helped him out like i started to work when i was 14 i started teaching english so mm -hmm. i actually like helped him financially you know and, and he ruined his stomach because like he also the other thing he could afford was this hydrogenated spread like this also thing was new in russia this you know margarine i guess mm -hmm. like that was his food you know and he hated it you know so for him it was a disaster because his very orderly world in which for him there was enough freedom uh you know he he was completely ruined you know and because my father is very he was never interested in in money in having more he's a very naturally content person you know like you know he has he's the kind who had like two pairs of underwear and socks and just mm -hmm. changed them every day and it was enough for him you know mm -hmm. um versus my mom is very uh spirited and you know she wants to have a free mind free speech and everything and so she was super happy she's like even though and we didn't have anything to lose like we were so poor so a lot of people who you know when we had this inflation where like one day you know we woke up and i was like oh you know yesterday 10 rubles was 10 rubles you know you could buy a lot of stuff like for a week and then we woke up and the next day 10 rubles was one loaf of bread you know and then in a couple of weeks or months and again these are just memories right so they may be false and not close to facts but the way i remember things is that one day ten thousand rubles well, actually that's close to facts so ten thousand rubles is now garbage but so a lot of people like they saved money all their lives and so for ten thousand rubles you could buy a nice car you know and so like one day when it happened within months like our very few friends who had it like had nothing because then you could buy a loaf of bread bread for ten thousand rubles you know and it was yeah. all done but my mom and i we had nothing, you know, my mom was like, oh, that's why you shouldn't have any savings, you know, only had 10 rubles and so I had nothing to lose, so I don't really care, you know, she was like, all those green people, look where they are now, you know, so, so she was just happy. She was just spending. Yeah, she was just like happy with the freedom of speech, you know, and, you know, we're two women, how much do we need, you know, eat very little overall, you know, and just, you know, just, just like that, you know, and I remember, you know, there's some things where like, oh, now you have more variety, you know, before we had like four types of bread. Now you have like 20 types of bread, you mm -hmm. know, after all, like how much bread can you eat? You know, yeah. how much can you consume? Right. Because back then we still weren't like we still were not exposed to just how much you can have. Right. Right. So we were still like post-Soviet Union. So it's not like next door to you had people who had villas and, you know, Ferraris and so forth. So you didn't have much, but you also didn't know how much you didn't have, you know? Yeah. But I think that one of the most tragic things that happened, and again, I mean, it's all, it's like, it's a journey, right? So I realized that what happened is we learned to envy because before the country was closed. And so in a way you were kind of content, like my dad, you know, and a lot of people were content. Uh, as a kid, I was like super happy. I mean, I went to Ukraine to see my grandparents twice a year, you know, I never felt miserable. Like I remember I had shoes with holes and like Soviet shoes, you know, like you put them on and literally three days they would like fall apart, you know? I thought mm -hmm. it was fun, you know? I was like, oh my, you know, now 
my feet are wet, you know, that's fun, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so, you know, but then I remember how, like, throughout the years, like, from kind of being excited and exploring is that new situation when I was 12, I went into, like, real depression when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, because then you're like, oh, you know, now I know how much we don't have, and now I want to have all this mm -hmm. stuff, you know, and I come from intelligentsia family and my parents are engineers, you know, and we can't really take bribes and, you know, we can't go into business because my father despises merchants, you know, he, you know, just kupci, you know, merchants mm -hmm. you know, despises them. Right. And so here I am, you know, medical student and, you know, tour guide and, you know, English teacher, and I'm going around in my giveaway, you know, fur coat. That's literally, I still have it. It's like 40 years old. It was like from trophy germany you know so I'm like seriously i still have that coat you know like, <laughs> trophy what? trophy stuff is yeah, such like, a th russian thing yeah like freaking trophy coat you know and i'm like going around you know and i still remember like i had this boyfriend and you know so i was like had this coat so you couldn't really see that inside the fur was all like spoiled and the buttons were falling off and you couldn't really repair it because like the the you know the skin of the coat was falling apart and I remember, and he was from the, a better family, you know, they adapted better, you know, they probably did take bribes or they had some like better posts. And I remember how he took my coat and then he saw that and he like, he's like, what is that? You know? And I was like, I had nothing to say, you know, I had nothing to say. I'm like, you know, I was like freaking Scarlett O'Hara, you know, with her dress out of that, you know, mm -hmm. velvet curtain. And mm -hmm. like, you know, I, you know, I was like, I didn't say anything. And then we didn't see each other after that, you know? So, um, really? no, yeah. So I really felt like, like desperate when I was a teenager because, you know, I felt like there was no opportunity for me. Like the only way I could have opportunity was to sell myself, you know, was to, you know, either, um, you know, either go, go into business because everybody was about business, 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 you know, or marry some rich scumbag, you know, because the only person who was rich would be a scumbag at that time, you know, who would control me um you know or take bribes as a doctor you know i was in the mm -hmm. medical school and so i felt like i felt very depressed because i felt like in that country there was no future for me you know because it wasn't compatible mm -hmm. with my moral standards um because yeah. i do come from a family with moral standards yeah. um and so i had to leave you know so i yeah. left when i was 12 20 because i you know i, I wanted to to be an honest person and I love science and medicine and I wanted to be able to do those things and at the same time have dignified life. You know, I yeah. didn't want anyone to look at my old moth bitten fur coat, you know, and, and judge you. that, you know. And judge so, you for that. Yeah, and judge me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I I cannot even imagine. It's it's a it's a completely different world, even though it's a very short like I'm not that much younger. Like it's just a small difference, like few years, but makes a huge difference in the experience because the country evolved so rapidly. I don't have any of those memories. I mean, I, we were also pretty poor and I didn't have any clothes and all of that, but I don't remember like not having food, for example, although mm -hmm. that did happen. I just don't remember it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, again, like food, I guess like I was never a big eater until you know sometime later <laughs> so that didn't really bother me like it was more like you know i remember like during perestroika times when i was like 12 13 
You know, yeah. my mom would send me to a corner store and she'd like, go see if there's anything in the store. And I'm like, okay, you know, and I'd run there. And okay, so there's this store. And because it's still a Soviet store, the salespeople are there. So they're not fired, but they're sitting there with their hands folded in the front of completely empty shelves. But they're all there. You know, the meat guy is there. The bread bread lady is there, you know, the, the dairy lady is there, but there's nothing. And they're like, is there anything? They're like, nothing. And I remember like, there were a couple of things. There was coffee, I guess, because it's not popular in Russia. So they had like, for some reason, coffee. And then there was bay leaf. I remember there was always bay leaf, you know, like over the freaking leaf, you know? So, and, and maybe something edible sometimes, you know, but um, yeah, but I was like, okay, you know, because... I didn't really care about eating very much back then, you know, and, <laughs> and, and we also, you know, so they gave, <laughs> yeah, they, they gave out these coupons, um, you know, for like, you get a bottle of vodka per person. I don't know if you remember it or if it's in the story or not, but so again, like back when that happened, right, there was like this year or two of shortages. And so, um, you couldn't buy stuff for money so you had to have a coupon right because you uh -huh. can only have that much of that particular thing per person per month or per week mm -hmm. so and everyone in the family would get a coupon for a bottle of vodka even kids so it didn't matter mm -hmm. like it wasn't like differentiated by age so my mom and i would get coupons for two bottles of vodka uh, a month you know and also uh -huh. like two kilos of sugar a month and like two or like whatever like kilos of flour a month and neither, you know and we didn't eat sugar or vodka you know, or, and so I remember we exchanged these coupons, you know, with other families who cared for this stuff for like coupons for something else, you know, or like mm -hmm. money, you know, so it was like exchange going on like that. <laughs> so. Crazy. Yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't remember any of that, but I've heard about it. Yeah. And, yeah. and when I walked into the store, and of course, it's nowhere close to, to that, but when COVID started and I walked into the store and the, I think to, even now, like they still have that thing. I don't know if they have it in Miami, mm -hmm. but here in LA at the store, they have uh, like not more than two chickens per person. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, obviously you can come the next day or like come back and yeah, get that's two more. Nobody cares. But I was like, oh, rationing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it starts. yeah or, like stupid toilet paper, you know, oh, that's yeah, you, that's you know, but for funny. me, it was like, I don't know. It's just funny, honestly. You know, it's a, it's just stuff. Uh, but the fun thing is, like, the fun stories for you is, you know, like I saying, like childhood and adolescent experience is always different, right? Because, yes. um, like, I guess a lot of the sorrow that you have is taught and you know also but then you also like get more of an opportunity for pure joy for other stuff mm -hmm. so that store that didn't have anything in it mm -hmm. was right next to a video salon which, which like is a place where you can go and pay a little bit of money and watch you know videos watch movies right because in mm -hmm. soviet union we only had three tv channels right yeah and so and my mom and I actually had a very broken old TV, black and white with a little like dial. So my mom and I only had like one TV channel. And so even though there was nothing to eat in the store, now they had this new business, which was a video salon where you could pay a little cash, you know, it's not much. And then go and like watch like a cool Western movie, a USA Pirated movie. VHS. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, so, and so even though the store was empty whatever you know i would go to that video salon and sometimes you can even sneak in because if the movie already started and it's dark you could sneak in and not pay and go in the back you know and guess what sometimes they even showed porn you know and so so Miracle. I, yeah so i knew the schedule of that salon and it, like you know that was quite joyful Exciting. so we're like frequenting that video salon you know quite often 
you know, and, and, and now you also had like the video channels. So you could like subscribe to one, but also when you had an old Soviet TV, the black and white with a dial, you can actually play with a dial and it could catch at that <laughs> channel. And a lot of it was porn. And so there'll be like this black and white, like, sh -sh 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 <laughs> like all the static, like going off and no sound or a little bit sound like out German porn going on, you know? And it was like me and my nephew sometimes like, you know, when parents are away, like trying to catch that, you know, in between all the channels, you know, like that was fun. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Wow little joys huh yeah yeah you know so it's like so what i didn't get a bottle of vodka or something you know like i don't even know what you know piece of meat you know there was other stuff yeah but so do you remember was your mom like um worried um no like i said not not really like my parents are a little bit different you know like i would mm -hmm. say i wish they actually were a little bit more responsible financial <laughs> and maybe a little bit worried but mm -hmm. uh but like you know they're kind of then i guess like a lot of people were worried like my friends parents were worried and they're like always trying to procure you know more meat and more food and like mm -hmm. store it and everything but um you know with us it, it was okay i don't remember it that much but i mean i'm sure maybe a lot of things i just didn't know about you know because sometimes mm -hmm. it's like oh she comes back with like a huge big stick of like sausage i was like where did that come from you know mm -hmm. now we're eating sausage all week because we have sausage you know <laughs> or you know so i'm sure like she did worry and she didn't do something to get like yeah food you know yeah and in, you know and, and um i mean i mean my mom I, I don't again i don't know how she felt like right now again i hope she never hears it but i mean she clearly has uh you know like tons of anxiety so back then i'm sure she mm. probably didn't manifest it but now she's over 80 and basically i mean she is not normal i mean she has ocd she has like terrible anxiety you know and i think that yes absolutely like maybe back then she was just like doing it but now for example you know all her house is just filled with plastic bags you know, she just has this thing about collecting mm. plastic bags because back then and in the Soviet Union, you can couldn't get stupid plastic bags. You know, you had to, you know, they were expensive and you had to like save them and wash them. And so now anything she like brings me, she wraps in like 10 plastic bags and then mm. in more. So it's like an obsession. So they're like all over the place, you know, in containers, like she saves all the containers from uh, sour cream and, and milk and everything. So her house is just filled with that to the matter to the point where I actually don't go to her house because I just can't be there because it just bring it does does give me those flashbacks because I'm like mm. I took you out of that where we had to wash the plastic bags and save you know save margarine containers because there was nothing else to store your food in you know and so I took her out of that you know I brought her here but she can't get over it you know and mm. so I, I I don't I don't like visiting her because it gives me a bad feeling you know like bring mm. brings me back to that but mostly it's like not for me, it's more for her because I feel her suffering. You know, I feel like her anxiety and I just don't like it. So. Does she ever, I mean, did you ever talk to her about it? Uh, it's it's hard to, she, she says it's normal. She just denies everything like a typical parent. You know, it's normal to have plastic bags everywhere and dry them and wash them and, you know, yeah. store them. So it's okay. My dad does the same thing. So yeah. he also like, you know, yeah, my grandma does the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So but in like, Russia. Right? Yeah, it's like a Soviet trauma, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so, you know, but mostly, you know, I think she just, I, I think she likes it. Like back when we, again, 
also back when we were in the time in the times of change and perestroika they also um translated um all the parliament meetings or whatever it was like our government body meetings pretty much 24 7 on tv and i remember oh, mean broadcast uh-huh. yeah like broadcasted and, and she constantly had it on and i hated it because i was like i just want to listen to these politicians all the time i guess it was like a duma gatherings yeah. and like them talking so she loves it you know i think does she, she watch c-span now uh now i think she she learned how to use computer but only youtube and i think she like pulls up mostly like ukrainian news and YouTube. so she now now 24 7 she again listens and watches all this political stuff and she just feeds on it it's like mm-hmm. it makes her anxious and then she calls me to make me anxious you know and i'm like mom i left russia to not be anxious about russia like i'm out of it like i don't really like that's behind like because she would literally call me and start like do you know you know in ukraine right now this is, and then in russia right now this is all going on and i was like yeah. don't, don't don't bring it into my life like i i care about russia but i don't want like have to have that heartache anymore you know yeah yeah i get it it is very difficult i I don't have anyone calling me to report the news, but I do have to like tune out sometimes when I know something's happening. I just tune out of social media not to see it. And then I just go by myself and then I find the time when I can when I can do it. Like those changes to constitution that were passed recently. I was just avoiding news about it for a long time. And then about a week before I sat down and actually read the text of the changes. I didn't Mm -hmm. read or listen to anyone's Mm -hmm. analysis or anything like Mm -hmm. that. I just went to the document and read it for myself to know what's happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that was more anger inducing rather than anxiety. Yeah. 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 And it just, you know, I'm just trying to focus on more productive feelings, you know, and and behaviors because if you're angry or anxious or depressed, you can't really change anything, you know? So um, I think, you know, I, I'm just trying to know things, but not really um, get into the cycle. Yeah, like non-productive, negative emotions that uh, don't really help you make this world better. And, you yeah. know, you also understand that um, some things you can't change, you know, like us being angry or anxious or sad is not going to change what's going on. You know, so the only way we can change things is just basically, um, I guess, uh, grow your your own spiritual body and just do what's right you know what you think is right and kind of learning learning what's right because we don't even know what's right kind of like looking into bigger you know universal spiritual path you know i think that's the only way yeah i am there with you on the path (laughs) (laughs) so you left in 98 from russia it was not soviet union anymore and you by then have graduated high school or what, what, how was life there? I graduated high school and I already had almost four years of uh, medical university. Um, so I, I was studying um, medicine at uh, the Pavlov's um, University in St. Petersburg. Um, so, um, I mean, the economy was just terrible back then. You know, when we started uh, medical university, I think it was 95, 96, something like that. Uh, you know, we drank cognac and we smoked like, I don't remember what we smoked, Marlboro, you know? 
And uh, it was good, you know, life was good. And, you know, I, and I, I worked from the very beginning. I started to work when I was, I think, 14. I, I taught English, uh, I gave private lessons. So I had at least some cash. I wasn't dependent on my parents. Um, and of course, I spent it all on, on what, smoke and, and, and alcohol, you know, and helped my parents out. Um, so, but then, you know, in 98, I mean, we were down to like sharing some freaking Zhugulevska, you know, and like sharing some Bilamor. You know, and um, the worst thing is that, you know, I felt like there was no future for me. You know, I felt like with medicine, the only way for me to get out of my freaking Kamunalka where I lived with my mom was to become a corrupt physician, was to take bribes, you know, or become a corrupt physician in one of those private facilities where they have no honor and knowledge. And I just don't have that personality. You know, I wanted to stay an honest person. And I'm also not a business-oriented uh, person at all. I love science. I love biology. I love... Uh, back then, I didn't really love helping people. You know, now I'm mature enough to say I love helping people. But back then, at least, you know, I had the purity of, of doing things in an honest way. And I just knew that, at least at that time in Russia, it didn't seem feasible. And we were very poor. So my dad lost his job. He was an engineer. My mom kind of lost her job slash retired early. She had, you know, a lot of medical issues. Um, so I basically was working every day. I was teaching English. I worked every weekend. I gave, I uh, was a tour guide in the Hermitage and all the St. Petersburg museums. Um, so, and of course, you know, every night from Friday to Sunday, I partied. So that was my life, you know, and I had to get out. <laughs> yeah. And you had what? And I had to get out. I had to get out. You know, I had this call that for myself, for my future, for me to develop as a person, the pure person that I am, you know, for me to develop as a scientist, I had to get out of Russia. And that was your decision. It was a serendipitous, really. And I think it was all predetermined very early on. My mom had breast cancer when I was born and uh, she was 38. I was a late, late child. Um, so she uh, thought at the time that she would not live to my maturity. She was pretty much told that she was going to die. Uh, so her goal uh, from my very birth was uh, to make me independent so that I could get out of Soviet Union and make a better independent living for myself. Um, so because she lived thinking she was going to die, she really invested everything into my education. So when I was five, she hired a private tutor for me who taught me English. She was an amazing woman. You know, she was the only one in St. Petersburg because at that time, no one really taught English to five-year-olds. I mean, we were like in deep communist times and my mom wanted to make sure that it was a good teacher with good pronunciation uh, and really good knowledge. So she was an amazing, amazing lady. She um, used to live in Germany. She had all this porcelain and, and, you know, things from abroad and candy. And she would always greet me in this beautiful dress. She was like a miracle. You know, and because she was like a miracle and she was incredibly kind, you know, I really, I did take to English. I loved coming to her place. She let me drink from those priceless 300-year-old porcelain cups, which was very special. So the whole experience of learning English was just sacred, you know, it was like a sermon. And to get to that lesson, my mom and I had to get across the whole city. It was one hour, public transport, bus, walk, subway, bus, ride. And, you know, I still remember my mom, you know, she was a single mom, engineer. So she spent most of her money on these lessons. So she had the shoes um, that were falling apart. You know, she was limping because her heel was broken on one of the shoes. And then she took me to those lessons, nevertheless. I still remember how we would go, you know, through the snow, we'd go through the rain. Sometimes the car would drive by and just splash us with this huge wave of dirty water. Like, I still remember those places where we always got splashed. And we still went to that English. And like, as we were going, she would always be telling me, she's like, he has, she has, I have. And I'm like, I have, 
you know, hee <laughs> So she really taught me tenacity and we didn't really complain much, you know, we just did it. And my mom, you know, her vision really came true um, because uh, then she got me into the school with extra English, which was extremely difficult. She really went to the minister of freaking education of um, St. Petersburg and she like cried in his office with me and told him she had cancer and all that stuff. And he let me, he like let me go into the school with extra English, even though I was like below the age that was required and the classes were full. So she was a real hero. Mama was, she was so smart, you know, she, I, I was going to make English my profession, but she said, you know, Yulia, you already speak English and you can always speak English. Language is a tool. It's not a profession. She's like, get a profession that's a skill that's unique that no one can have. And I already loved biology and everything. And so I try, I decided that I would go to the medical university. Um, I was able to get uh, into the medical university on my own accord. You know, I did not pay any bribes. Most people paid bribes uh, at that time. It was extraordinarily corrupt. Um, so my mom spent whatever little money she had probably all of it on my tutors for chemistry and Russian and biology so that I would just get in into the medical university. So what was it, what drew you to, to medical? I had a passion, you know, I had a passion. That's the thing. I was very curious. Like I love biology. I love it to this day. And it was always kind of like my, my shining light, you know, it was, uh, like I, I knew that I, that's what I had to do and explore. So. So let's jump to that moment when you first considered leaving. What was that moment? Do you remember? Um, I remember the process. I think it was uh, the last two years of the medical school where I was realizing that um, the economy was falling apart and uh, we lived in this awful, you know, communal apartment. We had no shower or hot water. Can you, can you describe it for, for the audience? I mean, I know, but I don't know yours. So, <laughs> <laughs> so communal apartment um, was a function um, of Soviet Union. So what happened is that after revolution, there was time when a lot of workers streamed to the cities to get jobs. Uh, there were poor people, like former peasants, and they had to have housing. So what they did is they took apartments from former nobility or merchants or rich people and would just divvy them up among the workers. And actually one family would just get a room. So in a five room apartment, you can have five families living. As a matter of fact, my boyfriend lived in a about 15 room apartment that used to belong to his family before revolution. And uh, they had 15 families and they had this enormous kitchen. It was crazy, you know, with the ceiling just covered in smoke from like 10 stoves cooking and it's insane. And they shared one bathroom. Oh my God. Um, so I was lucky. My communal apartment only had three rooms and uh, our neighbor, completely unrelated person had two rooms and we had a one room, my mom and I, and we shared the kitchen of course, and we shared a toilet. We did not share a bathtub or a shower because we had none. We also did not have any hot water whatsoever. Um, we just had ice cold water. There's no warming up or filters or anything like that. That's crazy. No hot water. Mm -hmm. Even for a Russian, I'm like shocked right yep. now. Yeah, that would make you probably pretty determined and that would probably make you decide at some point to get out of where you are. For sure. So was there a specific moment or specific situation that forced you to think, that's it, gotta go? I don't think there was a moment, but I still remember, I remember how I was walking in St. Petersburg. You know, I take those long, lonely, sad walks in St. Petersburg sometimes, like all St. Petersburg people do, thinking about crime and punishment and life and death. And uh, so I was just walking and looking at the buildings and I was looking at them and I was like, I'm looking at them as if I'm saying goodbye. And then I realized I was saying goodbye. And then I realized that I was ready to 
I was, I was ready to go, that I was going to go. So even though I had no firm plan and I didn't know how I would go, but I knew that my decision was made and that I was saying my goodbyes. And then for uh, months, I was just saying goodbyes. And then the circumstances came together to where actually I was able to leave the country. That's amazing that you subconsciously were ready to leave. And then the conscious decision came and, and the opportune moment came. Yeah, yeah. You know, because separation with the city is very difficult for a person from St. Petersburg. We love our city like a lover. Um, you know, so I remember more saying goodbye to the city than saying goodbye to my friends. With friends, I knew I probably would keep in touch, but leaving the city, you know, I didn't know if I would see it again or, you know, I, I probably knew that I would lose that connection. So that was most painful. Wow. For me, it's always about people. I love Moscow, but it's not like that. Yeah, yeah. St. Petersburg is very special. You're connected to the symmetry of the streets. You're connected to the curves of the arches and the cupolas and to the, to the sky and it all just being harmonious and sounding like music. I have it in me at all times. That's why I don't think anything can become my home unless it's the whole world. <laughs> you speak so beautifully about your city. It's so cool that you feel so strong about it. It's beautiful. Are you tearing up? <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> uh, do you go there? I didn't go for many years, uh, but now uh, I went uh, two years ago and then I just went this past summer. Why did it take you so long to go back? Um, I think that many things uh, here, I had to make a life for myself. I was just very busy and I also was very poor. So I didn't really have extra cash. I didn't have extra time. And honestly, you're trying to make the place your home, right? So going back would be like going backwards, would be not making this place my home. And I wanted to be happy here. A lot of my friends have this strange life, you know, they live in Europe, but they don't really consider themselves, you know, French or Dutch or whatever. So they have this kind of split weird life where they live in their country. They don't feel like they're citizens. They don't feel like it's their home. They enjoy it halfway. So I'm not like that. You know, I have to say I'm probably as much American as I am Russian and I enjoy being here. I can't say it's my home, but I enjoy it. You know, I embrace it. So I don't have this split life. Um, so going back was just at that moment, I think seemed painful. You know, so now when I'm fully formed here, I can go back there as a whole person. You know, so when I went back there, I didn't have that heartache anymore. I, I guess, you know, it was difficult. I had a hard life in St. Petersburg. So when I went back, I went back kind of as a winner, but also a mature winner, you know, not someone gloating. I went back as a whole person. I went back with happiness. Actually, last time I went, what I did is I went to the, all the old places of my suffering because in St. Petersburg, I literally had places where I like to go and suffer. It's so Russian. Yeah, it's so Russian. You know, there's one bench in St. Petersburg Falls Cathedral on the Hare Island, Zaichi Ostrov, where I came after school and I would just sit there, sometimes during the rain, sometimes during the snow, and I would actively suffer and write poetry. What were you suffering about? Just so many things, you know, I think a lot of teenagers have this sensation of loneliness. They have the sensation like no one understands them, you know, they, the future, of course, because I felt like there was no future for me there. And overall, the future was uh, pretty murky. Um, I'm also an extremely sensitive person. Uh, so, you know, just seeing injustice, just seeing what was happening uh, in the country, just seeing, you know, little babushkas, little old women selling things in, in the subway, you know, seeing street animals, that made me suffer. Everything around made me suffer. Um, or just, just like that, you know. But uh, I, I changed, you know, and I, I made a very conscious effort in the past couple of years to correct my, my psyche, to also go back and visit myself in my youth. And I did it. You know, I literally went to the places of my former suffering 
And I talked to myself. I talked to the 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old myself. And I patted myself on the shoulder and I said, you know, Yulia, everything is going to be okay. You're going to be fine. You don't have to be sad. And you know what? I do not have the burden anymore. That Yulia, that Yulia now knows that the current Yulia is very happy. So, you know, all together, I just, I just have lightness. Okay, let's back up to 98. So yep. the opportune moment came to go to the U.S. What was that? What happened? Again, weird stories, so many stories. So when I was in the medical school, my second year, I was partying too much, just a lot. So my mom was like, that's it, you know, we're going to put brakes on you. And as a doctor, you're going to be dirt poor. So you have to have a second profession. So she signed me up to this uh, tour guide courses within tourists, you know, this agency for the tourists. So they're official courses. So for a year, believe it or not, I was in a medical school. And then three times a week from 6 to 9 or 10 p.m., I went to these classes to become a tour guide. And then every weekend of the year, pretty much, I went to various museums to learn from the curators about the collection. That's so cool. Yes, it was super cool. I skipped two, two weeks, I think, of my medical school completely uh, to study with uh, the curators of the Hermitage maybe even more, and then I lied that my grandma died. And then the dean was like, so how many grandmas do you have? As far as I remember, a couple already died. <laughs> you know, I lied about it before for some other absences. I married a few times, so what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So they were, pretty, they were pretty lenient. So in any case, they didn't kick me out. So I also acquired a diploma of a professional tour guide for the city and all the museums. And so I started when I was 19. Uh, and um, my very first tourists were a group from North Carolina, uh, students and professors. And I was 19 and I love art. I love it. It's my other passion. I just really invested my heart and soul into them. And, uh, you know, after the Hermitage excursion, I said, you know what, guys, if you really want to see the collections, I'll just take you for free. I'll take you to my favorite ones. Like one of them was Hidden Treasures, for example. So it wasn't part of the official tour. It was the Impressionist. Uh, and I did. And then I spent time with them, hang out after the tours, you know, they took me to like McDonald's and I thought it was like, wow, you know, fantastic. I spent about a week with them. Then I left. It was a funny moment is they asked me, they're like, weren't you scared when you did this for the first time? And I was like, yeah, very scared. Well, guess what? It was my first time with them and I was freaking scared. And I also made up stories about things with the help of my bus driver. He was like poking me in the ribs and like, you know, this is a story, you know? So in any case, so after they left, you know, in a couple of months, I was sleeping exhausted after my medical school. And then I, there's this phone call in the stationary phone and I wake up, you know, run there to the phone. And there was this voice from the United States and one of the professors who was my tourist and he's like, you know, we want to invite you over and uh, do you want to come for the summer? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course, sure. Really want to come. Great. Thank you. I hang up, went back to sleep. Then I woke up and then I asked my mom, I was like, mom, did someone call from the US and invited me? And she's like, yes, they did. So my mom borrowed money from all her friends because the ticket was like more than she made in one year. I went to the embassy and somehow miraculously they gave a 19-year-old me a visa, which is really, really strange. At that time, they didn't let out any single young females. They still don't. My cousin didn't come to my wedding because of that. Yeah. Maybe it's because I was in the medical school and I spoke good English. So maybe they thought I wouldn't leave because of the medical school. Or maybe they thought if I did leave and stayed in the States, I would be okay. So in any case, uh, I went to Hickory, North Carolina. They were from Hickory, North Carolina, which is like in the middle of nowhere, redneck country next to the mountains. Um, and I was supposed to stay with the professor, but he got sick. He, had, he developed diabetes acutely. He was in the hospital. So I ended up staying with one of the students who was also from my tour group. Well, guess what? She was a single mom. She had a four-year-old brat little son. She was completely broken. So she couldn't even like have a food. She had no food. And I had $200 for the whole summer. 
Uh, so I, like, I, and I, I couldn't, I, I felt like I couldn't spend a penny because it was all we had. You know, so I was starving there. I couldn't go anywhere because it's, it's country, it's the South. So without a car, you can't get anywhere whatsoever. And uh, she kept going to some house nearby, which was called, she said was Fred house. At that time, I thought it was like Fred's, like the guy called Fred lives there. Well, little did I know it was Fred house, like fraternity. And I was like, why is she going there? So I went there, I walk in and they're all smoking pot, eating pizza and watching Cartoon Channel, which was completely terrifying, you know, because I was like a mature, whatever, I was 19 year old and to see adults watching cartoons, I can imagine what kind of quality material that was. Uh, while high, which I also never saw high, dumb people, you know, was completely terrifying. So, uh, yeah, but at least I had some pizza, so I had something to eat. Because all I had at her place, like, for weeks, I was just eating old ice cream from the freezer. That's all I had to eat for a couple of weeks. You know, so I had some pizza, and then they gave me some pot from the bong and with some jazz music, and that was beautiful. I did not watch Cartoon Network, though. That I could not cross that, that barrier. To this day, I'm a little bit traumatized by SpongeBob SquarePants who lives under the pineapple or something. So anyhow, so you don't know. Good. Lucky you. <laughs> so you became one of those adults watching the cartoon. <laughs> oh, no. Friends so, out. and then I met one of her friends and we fell in love. He kind of rescued me out of the cold. So we traveled around the United States. He seemed like the most beautiful person in the world to me at the time. And uh, then I left and then he went to Russia. He visited me in Russia. I was already 20. I was in the fourth year of medical school. And then he didn't want to leave without me. So what happened is we were literally, we were driving back to the airport. He was ready to go back to the States. And my mom told, told him, again, my mom comes in and she's like, you know, Carrie, do you realize that if you leave now, you may never see her again? And he realized that. And he's like, turn the car around. And like, we turned the car around right in front of the airport and he stayed and we got married. And at that time they gave green cards right away. They gave me a green card and there you go. I came to the States, back to North Carolina. Mom, you went to say when to sing it so that it hurts yeah my mom knew all the way you know my mom knew everything she's a very wise woman so do you remember when you were actually leaving with your husband at that point mm -hmm. uh to go to north carolina to live right do you remember mm -hmm. that day you remember leaving yes uh yes i remember very well it was uh um again you know when you're younger, I guess like the enormity and gravity of the whole situation doesn't really strike you. You know, you're more kind of excited about the adventure. Um, so um, I got uh, my green card with ease back then. They just gave them when you got married, you just came in with your um, translated marriage certificate to American embassy. And they literally just gave you a green card for two years, you know, and then um, I packed up my one suitcase. And I remember my father gave me this gigantic bouquet of uh, beautiful roses. Um, and also I had two little green aquatic turtles and I didn't want to leave them behind. They were very small, like, you know, like three and a half inches or so, you know, and so I'm like, I'm going to bring my turtles with me. So I put them in my pockets, each one, each turtle in my two coat pockets, you know, and here I was with my suitcase and turtles in my pockets and a beautiful <laughs> flower, flowers, you know, and, and I just felt very happy. I mean, I loved my husband at that time. And, uh, you know, I was happy and grateful. And my dream to leave Russia was coming true. And, you know, I had a feeling that I would have a lot of opportunities. Um, and um, I lost one turtle in my yard. It fell out of my pocket and escaped. Uh, but then... <laughs> Um, the other turtle remained in my pocket and I fed it pizza in London and it ate, I didn't ever knew those little turtles would eat cheese off of pizza. Um, and then somehow I did ended up smuggling it through the border. They never found it, but I brought it in. Uh, what was his name? Oh, he didn't have a name. 
No? Okay. No, no name. I know. No name so, turtle. Aquatic turtle, you know, and, and then and, and then my huge bouquet of flowers, you know, we entered in Raleigh, I think, North Carolina. It was like the the point where they were checking me in as an immigrant. And, you know, and you're not supposed to in, in, in that um, little uh, customs declaration. There's a question, you know, do you have any plans? Yeah. And yeah. I said, no. You know, and here I'm with my huge bouquet of flowers, you know, like <laughs> my eyes wide open, like so happy immigrating. And he's looking at me and like my brand new everything. And then and they're like, you put you have no plants and you have with roses. And I was like, these are not plants. You can't plant them. These are roses. These are flowers. My dad gave them to me, you know, and he was completely stricken by this argument. Like, I have to say he was like, oh. You know, oh, that's walked, beautiful. You know, he looked at me. He looked at the roses, and he's like, oh, "Okay, okay, okay." You know, give them to us. Let let us examine them. And they like pretended like they examined them for some insects and just gave them back to me. And like I smuggled my roses as well. So you know, my entry was already filled with smuggling stuff into the United States. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like live animals and roses. You know, <laughs> and that was very convincing, right? That's hilarious. And my journey started on a very right foot. You know, I got around the customs. I convinced them you know but you can't plant the roses you can't plant the roses these are flowers <laughs> that's beautiful that's so good so, you know and since then it was just like that i mean i have to say it was just like like i had very hard times because of course being this immigrant as i talked about you know and being depressed and away from home in different environment but i was just so lucky that i had just so many wonderful people who helped me on my way and that I guess I had this like complete, like, I mean, belief into, you know, just everything going my way because I was just so young. I was like unstoppable, you know, I brought in the roses, I brought in the turtle. And then, you know, like everybody was telling me, oh, you know, it takes like years to get into medical school, you know, and, you know, don't even dream about it. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm almost a doctor. And I got into freaking med school a year and a half after I crossed the border. I was accepted into the United States Medical School, you know, because I was just like, there is no other way. Yeah. You know, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. That's you have to have that. You have to have yeah. that feeling. Yeah. Like no fear. Of I think America rides on it. <laughs> Yeah, like no fear of failing. And that's what I love about it. So I lived in a trailer. I wore overalls. I gained about 20 pounds. Um, I got a job at the Belk Better Sportswear store. So I was a salesperson. I enrolled in that same very Lenore Ryan College where my professors and students were from. And they were fantastic. They didn't give me any trouble. They were so kind. Uh, they gave me financial aid. I absolutely had no money. So they gave me full loans and a little bit of scholarships. Again, I was studying very hard. I was working three jobs, ended up working as a vet assistant, just cleaning cages and like holding down animals, washing floors. I worked as a census taker, driving my old car, old Lincoln in the, you know, depth of the United States South, you know, people with Confederate flags. And I would go take census from them with a long form and I would knock and I'm like, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm from Russia. They're like, the government is sending a Russian to get information from the United States citizen, you know? so. You know, so that was odd looking back. I don't know how I wasn't raped or kidnapped or anything. There were a lot of really creepy, weird guys in those trailers where I went. So, <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, and I finished college. I studied really hard. Uh, I finished college in two years instead of four um, because I took double of all the classes and I took double classes in summer sessions because I really didn't want to be in college. I wanted to be in the medical school. Um, 
everybody told me, oh, don't. Yeah, my medical school counted for nothing because at that time, back in 98, 99, there was no such thing as bachelor's degree in Russia. So all my four years out of six of medical school counted for absolutely nothing. And uh, they did convert the diploma and they transferred credits to Lenoran College, but they didn't go towards any degree whatsoever because, for example, anatomy is not a college credit. You know, physiology is not a college credit. It just doesn't exist. So I actually had to take like biology 101, English 101, you know, chemi like all this stuff I could teach. And I actually also taught, like I became a lab assistant and a tutor for chemistry and for biology. So, uh, you know, so I had to do all that stuff. And also in order to get into medical school, you actually have to have those credits, the most basic credits in the American institution. So like you had to have English 101 credit from American college, you know, biology 101. So all this stuff. So I took all that and I took much more, you know, loving art. Like I just actually enjoyed uh, that opportunity. So I took a ton of like extracurricular art. I, I mean, not extracurricular, but all the electives were art. Like I did sculpture and pottery and figure drawing and, you know, art history. Um, I actually really enjoyed like this liberal art stuff. You know, it was a small Lutheran college. So I actually had a religion class and I loved it. Uh, history. And I learned how to be an American. Um, yeah, so, you know, everybody says, you know, do you regret, like, you lost all this time? And I'm like, well, I didn't lose time. I was uh, 18 to 20, and uh, so I was just a little bit older than other kids who got into medical school. I had this college experience, so I knew what college was about. I lived with American people, so people in the South love to talk. They just love to talk, like, I guess the same way I'm talking now. And so I learned how to be a listener, and it's very important for a physician to be a listener. It's important to relate to people even when you are irritated or bored. You know, it's important to be respectful. It's important to understand American accent. It's important to understand people from various regions of the United States. For example, in, the, in North Carolina, mountain people from Appalachia are very hard to understand. So I learned all that. Then after less than a year of being in the United States, I took MCAT, so Medical College's Admission Test. And believe it or not, I did really well. I do believe it. Why would I not believe it? <laughs> it was my very first standardized test. I mean, I didn't even take a practice test. It was the first multiple choice test I took in my life. And all I had, I just took like physics books, chemistry books, whatever books, and I had no money for like Kaplan prep or anything. So I just sat with books and failure was not an option. So I just studied and, and I, I did it. And so I'm very grateful to all my amazing teachers that I had back in the Soviet Union and during my whole life who taught me how to study. I had good scores. I got interviews and UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill was uh, kind enough to take me. You know, they had misgivings, for example, at the interviews, they were really probing because they don't want to take uh, students who would fail. They even offered for me to do a summer program prior to med school. So I would have no trouble in med school, which of course I rejected saying, are you kidding? I'm going to do great, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> I graduated in the top, I think 10 or five of my class. So I graduated uh, with distinction from my medical school. There was one Russian kid above me in the class above me and then me. And he also was one of the top five students of his class. So after two of us, they never really had misgivings about Russian kids anymore. So the student here after me was fantastic. She also was like top 10 or five of her class. <laughs> so, so we established a very good uh, reputation. <laughs> So what was your, what was your, how was your husband's family reacting to you? Everybody was very nice uh, and uh, they all loved me. They were great. I think actually now looking back, I'm more critical of myself because, you know, I was always like saying, oh, but in Russia, oh, but in Russia, you mm -hmm. know, and now looking back, of course, now I would never do that, you know, but back then, I mean, mm -hmm. I was brand new and I was only 20 years old. And like, I remember, for example, that when we had our first Christmas together, I didn't want to wrap any presents because I thought it was stupid, you know, because in Russia, mm -hmm. we never wrapped presents. And I thought it was like really wasteful to buy all that wrapper and to tear it and throw it away. And out of principle, I was like, I'm not wrapping any presents. And I remember that, um, 
they were, you know, a little bit, not hugely upset, but I remember like Carrie's mom said, but you're in the United States now. And I remember mm-hmm. that back then I was kind of upset, you know, but now looking back, I'm like, that's true. You know, you got to assimilate, you know, or for example, also for Christmas, like the first Christmas, I was like, everything is green and red i'm like that's just so cliche it's just like everything the same and on purpose i got like pink and blue stuff you know because mm-hmm. i was like you know i thought it was really stupid to decorate with like that everybody decorates with the same stuff mm-hmm. you know and now again now i'm just fine with you know plastic candy canes and you know like you know i'm i'm, I'm not trying to like you know establish my independence on like being different in my christmas decorations but you know back then it was like silly stuff like that you know yeah. um so so i so i think it, like i was more like resisting to assimilation so i was curious but i was resistant and i actually am thinking that they could have been meaner to me you know they could have been not as nice but i think considering just how you know rebellious i was i think they were pretty nice so. <laughs> well, what did what did they think about him getting a Russian wife? Like, was there any judgment there? Did you feel oh, any yeah, weirdness? Were... No, not at all. Actually, like I lived in a real countryside, and you know, in a trailer with him. So actually, the person closest to us was uh, his landlady who lived on the same piece of land. So she owned a nice farmhouse on that land and we lived in her trailer. And she was super sweet and charged just so little for rent. And like, she told me like all about her family. Like every day I would come out because for a couple of like months I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't working and, you know, I, had, I didn't mm-hmm. have time. And she would talk to me for hours about her family and like farming and, mm-hmm. you know, like her cats and she loved, she grew all these vegetables and fruit and she canned and I would just spend hours in her house, mm-hmm. you know, so it was, it was really wonderful. I mean, she was a very simple country woman, a teacher, um, but just her love to me was beautiful and I'm still you know, I'm still in touch with her. It's been over 20 years now. So, wow. you know, majority of people, I would say, were more fascinated by me um, rather than critical of me. And they all tried mm-hmm. to somehow help and embrace. And, you know, so um, I still f- felt lonely because some customs were different for me. And, right. you know, some of them were pretty significant. Um, but I think in general, it it was okay. Like, I think one of the other like things that were tough for me was the fact that in the South, almost everyone goes to church. Mm-hmm. And so people kept inviting me to go to um, the church services. And in the South, it's mostly it's Southern Baptist, it's um, Lutheran, um, you know, Presbyterian. Um, so there's some forms of Protestant religion. Uh, and um, I um, am not a very religious person and I actually really dislike mass events and gatherings. Like I'm more of a like not a part of the group type of person. And so I really tried very hard to go to church and every time I just hated it. You know, I just I just couldn't, you know, stand up, sit down with everyone. I would get a headache, you know, and like singing. I just couldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't believe people would get up at 8 a.m. and drag themselves to church on Sunday, you know. So and um, uh, I hear you husband's uh mom so they were very religious uh, southern baptist extremely religious and um so you know she invited me one day to her mega church and i went and then i'm looking and i'm like the pastor is really obese and all his family and and i actually read the bible i'm like 
And I was like, I just couldn't believe, like, again, that these are such religious people. But I'm like, isn't that a mortal sin, like gluttony? I asked her, I was like, isn't gluttony a mortal sin? I was like, I don't get something here. You know, you guys are so religious and you want to observe. And I'm like, I, I'm just not seeing it, you know? So I just felt like there was um, a lot of, um, uh, what do you call it? Like, uh, uh, maybe insincerity, you know, like like yeah disconnect disconnect, you know from like going to church and actually like the way of life you know i didn't feel like people actually practiced the spiritual or religious way of life you know i felt like they went to church but it didn't have much to do with way of life you know and i didn't like it so it was like a part of my torment you know and of course Mm -hmm. i like tried like i tried you know i I went to a religious college i went to a lutheran college Mm -hmm. and actually religion was my favorite subject we had a great professor who was also a pastor like actually liked his sermons and i went to his services several times he was very smart Mm -hmm. um you know so so i liked it from um like a point of view of philosophy and history but i just also like that was part of the reason why i couldn't stay in the south because i just could never be a part of that you know religious community hmm that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. So when you when you say you know you became an American, what was it? First of all, did you want to become an American when you got here? Um, I I think I did. I was very young and I was very excited about everything. You know, when you're that young, you don't really reject. So the rejection started later. Um, well, no, okay. Initially, I, of course, I rejected. I mean, I came here. All I had were high heels and miniskirts, and then I was like parading like that in college and like everywhere, and people were looking at me. And uh, like it took me maybe six to seven months to buy sneakers because I never I never went anywhere without high heels, you know. And I remember I bought the sneakers. So I bought they were size they were too large because I was very poor. So I had the one pair that was on sale. So like I was like a Mickey Mouse in this oversized sneakers. And I bought a pair of jeans like blue jeans and some like sweatshirt. And I put that on and I went like that. It was so embarrassing, you know, and I went like that to my college. And then I realized that I was like finally blending in because before then, I mean, in North Carolina, the kids, they didn't even talk to me. No one even talked to me. I was so lonely. Like they totally did not accept me at all. Kids didn't talk to you. Hold on. You were there with your husband, right? No. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't a college student, so he was not a student at that college. So, you know, he was just, you know, he was a laborer. Okay. Yeah. So I was just by myself, like a Russian girl, and I was totally out of my element. And I was completely alienated because as you can tell, I'm I'm a very friendly person and I always had a lot of friends. And those kids, they just wouldn't talk to me at all. And I think I also, like, I didn't understand the humor. I didn't understand the values. You know, I couldn't watch Cartoon Network. I didn't understand sports. I didn't care about sports either. So what happened is uh, with time at that college, I found international students, so I became friends with international students and also found art students. And art students were great, so I actually made friends with American art students and with some of them I became very close. That's where I was blending in. So I guess I was Americanizing. So I gained weight, I got all this clothing that was loose. Uh, (laughs) I started to understand jokes. I guess maybe I acquired a Southern accent. So uh, it was a process. But when, when when did the depression kick in? So I would say probably the end of the first year when when I started to feel like, you know, I thought I would just come and then I would be friends with everyone. You know, I thought that black people and white people would be friends and would be together. And I realized there was absolutely segregation and that was weird, you know, and and then I realized that, you know, I was kind of segregated and and people look at me like I was strange. Uh, So I was just very lonely. How how did you feel that? What made you feel that I mean, I would say like even after the class, people wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't invite me to the parties, you know, they wouldn't invite me to um, anything. So it was like I was some weirdo, I guess. And it was just very strange to me. I didn't understand why. 
uh, now I understand is because they come from a very small place. And I also understand, I think it's just a thing in the United States. Like even my 15 year old son just changed schools and he was experiencing this for like almost six months. He's like, I'm not a part of a group. I don't have friends. Um, I just don't, I don't remember having such problems in, in Russia. You know, I don't remember like when I joined my medical school, almost immediately I found a couple of people I could talk to and I was fine. So I never felt like so alienated from people. But in the States, it was definitely an issue. And then, you know, of course, I met some Russian people, but then you realize that you can't be real friends just because you're Russian. You know, I mean, you are a little bit, but also, you know, maybe you don't have too much in common. So I had some Russian friends, but again, they weren't really like soul friends. Yeah. It took me longer to find Russian friends than to find friends. Like, yeah, not yeah. every Russian is going to be my friend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you realize that, oh, you I actually grew, grew up in a pocket of society where we're all similar. So I thought the whole world was like that. And then it turned out, no, the whole world was not like that. And the whole world didn't care for Japanese poetry and didn't care for Impressionists and didn't care for classical music and, you know, didn't care for, you know, science or and didn't, didn't, didn't really care, didn't care for a lot of things that I cared about. So um, what is your favorite Japanese poetry? <laughs> oh, um, I love Isa. Me too. And Busan. Yes. Yeah. You know, so climb Mount Fuji snail, but slowly, slowly. You know, or even a flea bite on a young girl is beautiful. That's so um, cool. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> then I divorced my first husband because of Japanese poetry. So really, yeah, he he laughed at haiku. So after a lot of realization of a lot of misunderstandings, I think the last drop was uh, him kind of laughing about haiku and like saying how it was uh, stupid. There were stupid poems. So I was like, that's it. Packed up my little box and left. So <laughs> that's so cool <laughs> because I think I, I, you know, as silly as that sounds. I think it's a very defining thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, you got to respect it. You know, we say, no, I don't understand it. You know, you, you may say, well, you know, maybe not at this stage of my life, but you don't like laugh and, you know, say it's like stupid. So, you know. Yeah, you do belittle something that someone you love loves. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or at least to respect. I don't even need love. Just, just respect. That's so badass. And so how old were you at that point? Uh, I was, it seems like centuries passed, but I was only 21. <laughs> So you packed and moved out of the trailer and went where? So I was already, so what happened is that I got into med school. We moved from the trailer from like Kickery. We moved to Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina. We actually bought a place um, because, you know, at that time you could buy a place for $15,000, you know, with like $500 down payment. Um, but the thing is, what happened is my husband was very controlling, you know, extremely controlling. So he didn't want to teach me how to drive. Even though I had three jobs, he wanted all the money to be put on his account. And then I had to be accountable for every little thing. Um, he didn't let me go anywhere by myself. And basically those were the issues, you know, beyond the Japanese poetry. And he didn't, he wasn't willing to work them out. So, and I, then I realized he's just a Southern guy from the Southern family. And that's how it was. You know, first I thought that I was a terrible person. And then I realized that, um, no, that was the culture and that I, I could never be a part of that culture. So I had to go because of course, I mean, I was fiercely independent and I was never, you know, I was never accountable for my money or anything to anyone. Um, so uh, in the medical school, they give you student loans. So they gave me student loans for the whole year. Uh, and I went and I opened my own bank account. He didn't let me open my own bank account. So I walked to the bank, opened the bank account, packed up my little box, found a little room with roommates and, and just left. So uh, there I was, I was on my own. <laughs> that must have been scary. Oh, uh, no, actually, it was much scarier to live with him for the rest of my life. The idea of that <laughs> was scary. You know, I was set. I had my student loans and I had myself and it was uh, great. I mean, the only thing is I was extremely lonely. Like I said, I mean, I was depressed. You know, I, I started out depressed from St. Petersburg and I continued to have like this background of clinical depression. Um, so I was just extremely lonely all by myself in my little room, you know, and 
again, medical school, new environment. Um, I was very lucky to make uh, wonderful friends pretty quickly, a very small group, but a very special group, people who did love poetry. But still, you know, even with them, it was just, it was just lonely for most. Right. So and where were your parents at that time? Um, so they were in Russia. So for all my time in the medical school, all I ate was rice and beans, pretty much just straight, not even salsa. I couldn't afford that. Or I felt like I couldn't, I dressed in secondhand. Sometimes I had pasta plain pasta with like most plainest sauce or I think I just bought a can of tomatoes or something and so I actually saved money and I sent money to my parents and to the rest of my family from my student loans uh, and I had my mom visit me like once a year so I paid for her to visit I also saved up a little bit of money and I went to France to Paris it was a tremendous just by yourself by myself yeah I, but I had a friend there so a friend I already made in Chapel Hill a French guy he moved back to France mm. so I stayed with uh, him and his family there but I was just by myself I went around all the museums and exhibitions by myself. That's so cool. Traveling by yourself is really different kind of experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so okay, a little bit back to your depressive state. So in, that, in those moments when you were in your little room eating beans and rice, <laughs> did you think, you know, fuck it, I'll just go home? Oh, never, 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 never. I was never going to go back home to Russia. I felt like it. I mean, the vision that I had was me just walking out uh, of my place there in the States and just walking and walking and walking nonstop until I reach St. Petersburg. So I frequently just close my eyes or just like step out and just start walking and just imagine I'm just going to walk endlessly unless until I'm home. Uh, but I didn't know that it was just not an option because first of all, I already like took all my documents from the medical school there. So I couldn't come back to the medical school and my profession was uh, life defining for me. Um, so I had to continue in the United States. I had to make it. Wow. Now I'm tearing up. That's, that's intense. <laughs> that, that must have contributed to <laughs> feeling the pressure too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, but also I love what I do. You know, I love medicine. I actually loved medical school, you know, so when, when I was studying, I was happy, you know, cell biology, biochemistry, you know, it's awesome. So when I was studying, I was fine. It was mostly when I was uh, not studying, but knowing myself, as you know, knowing me, of course, very quickly, I found a new hobby, salsa dancing. So I went out at least three times a week until like two in the morning while in the medical school. This is crazy. That's how I pulled myself through my last depressive dip. I started dancing salsa two years ago. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So we see, we have a lot of similarities. That's why you know I'm not I'm, I'm not sure whether we have a lot of independent choice. You know, it must be in the DNA, right? So the DNA was guiding me to that salsa and hot Latin guys, and uh, you know I did a bachata competition, and you know I was like semi-professional, so that was a lot of fun. So you made friends then? Oh yeah, yes. Well, but they were like Latin guys. I mean, they were all what? Were they liars, cheaters? You know, Latin guys. They were my my temporary lovers. So, but I always always loved Spanish. So what happened is that. Um, in the medical school, very quickly, I realized that it was extremely important for a physician to know Spanish because uh, in sometimes on some rotations, I had 90% of Spanish speaking only patients. And then I had the salsa connection and all this Latin guys. So I put together money from my student loans and I went to Guatemala. So I think it was after the first year, I went to Guatemala for the whole summer. And so I studied in the Celes Maya, a wonderful school of Spanish language, five hours a day, one-on-one -on -one with a teacher. And so in um, eight weeks, I learned Spanish. And then week nine, I traveled around Guatemala. Now I'm older and I'm like, what the, how could I do it? Like, how did I not get raped, killed or kidnapped? You know, I don't know. But back then, like by myself, you know, 21 or something years old with a backpack and on crazy chicken buses in the middle of some gangster land you know like i, I was robbed on, on at the gunpoint on the volcano i thought that was fun you know <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 
<laughs> what? <laughs> it's just in Guatemala. It's a funny story because so we're having this like, you know, Spanish school tourist group uh, excursion on to climb the volcano, you know, and I had my I didn't even have a Lonely Planet book that because that was too expensive for me. So I had some Lonely Planet knockoff book from the <laughs> thrift store, yeah. you know, and so I'm reading about this volcano in my book and it says in the book, sometimes armed robberies happen on volcanoes in Guatemala. I'm like, okay you know and so i like i'm like okay i'm not bringing much cash you know i'm not bringing anything expensive and maybe not even my camera so i was like okay you know so we went with the group and i was totally prepared for an armed robbery robbery and it it happened you know <laughs> so so i was not a bit surprised or you know okay note to self read <laughs> read lonely planet knockoff book yeah you know like other people like that were more well off like you know they're like some like older people they didn't read the book and you know they had like the passports and a lot of cash and i'm sure you know and they didn't hide it and so they had their stuff taken away they were all upset and i'm like guys you didn't read the book <laughs> you know <laughs> but that's, yeah. a, that's a great uh that's a great tip traveling yeah. tip yeah that's hilarious um, so when I came back to the States, I could talk to my Latin guys. They were flabbergasted. And also I signed up as a volunteer at our free clinic um, as to interpret and help our Spanish-speaking patients. Since that time, my life also became very closely connected to Latin culture, to Mexican, Central South American patients, and to Spanish language. Wow. So Los Angeles made sense as the next stop. Los Angeles, yeah, it made sense. Yeah, absolutely. It made sense. I, actually, I didn't really know that Los Angeles would have such a huge uh, Mexican population, mm -hmm. uh, but it was perfect for me because I was very concerned. It was one of my goals to continue practicing Spanish and help uh, the underserved. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I acquired passion for those people, not only for their joys, such as salsa dancing, but also I really wanted to alleviate their suffering and be helpful in the healthcare. So definitely uh, UCLA residency, all of you hospital, I was able to take care of Spanish speaking patients and, you know, make them comfortable. So that was beautiful. And uh, now I'm in Miami. So I speak yeah. Spanish. Miami makes a lot of sense too now. <laughs> it's fantastic. So I speak Spanish, I would say 95% of the time with my patients, 95% of the time. They're mostly Cuban. Uh, so I have some Venezuelans I have from Colombia. And we are just jiving, you know, we love each other. It's fantastic. I have a beautiful relationship with those people. I would say quite therapeutic. So all that debauchery was not for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly. So, okay. So besides finding friends, what were the tough things early on? You know, I would say I learned so much. You know, I, I, I would say, unfortunately, in Russia, what happened after the Soviet Union opened up, um, they taught us how to envy and they taught us to not be happy with what we had, uh, you know, versus in the Soviet Union, people were kind of Zen for most, you know, they're like, you know, at least my dad, who's a very Soviet person, you know, is like, you know, I'm an engineer, I make hundred rubles and that's cool. You know, that's what I have. That's what I am. You know, no issues. Well, part of it was that everybody was living in the same way. You didn't have much to envy for others were yeah. the same. Yeah. So everybody was equal, you know? And so, but then, you know, I think unfortunately, like, I didn't have very wise people to listen to. And I have to say, I don't think my mom was wise about that, about teaching me to be content with what I had. And maybe that's why I am so successful. Uh, you know, I guess how, how you de define success. But I would say that I just really hated that I was so poor because I was, I mean, you know, everybody went back home to their parents. They had a home, they had a house to go to, they had a room, they had place to, to have their stuff. You know, they went on a ski vacation or to Europe. 
And there was, you know, like a snail carrying around everything I had, all my earthly possessions, because I had nowhere to put it. Uh, you know, so it was just like a little bit depressing, you know, not having a permanent home that was depressing. And also knowing that I was poor and like still having this Russian trauma, you know, still having this desperation and not knowing what it was to be successful. Like I'm sure that all other medical students knew very well what it meant to be a doctor in the United States. I didn't, you know, I did not know it would be okay. You know, I was just very concerned about the student debt. And I really envisioned like that I was going to be like that forever. I was just very scared. I had a lot of fear, fear of uh, continuous poverty. Um, so, uh, and yeah, so that, that was unpleasant. America will do it for you. I mean, for me, and when I came to the States, I didn't, I was fortunate I got scholarships, so I didn't have any loans to, to pay off. And, but I do remember seeing homeless people here in Los Angeles and realizing that the difference between me and them is one mistake. Yeah. Yeah, car accident or health emergency, and I'm right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't have health insurance, and just not having health insurance, just not being able to go to the doctor is humiliating. And I was clinically depressed, so actually, I went once to like a free clinic, or someone took me. I think one of my professors in college realized I was extremely depressed because I started talking to him, and then I was crying. And he actually was very kind, so he paid for that visit. He took me to the doctor. And the doctor described an antidepressant for me, which of course I didn't take, you know, after a couple of <laughs> days, I just stopped taking it because like, ah, oh, not for me. Um, you know, Why? Uh, I think it just, you know, just again, being a stubborn Russian patient is like, oh, I think there's side effects, Ugh, you know, I can do better without it. I can cope on my own. I was born in 77. So, <laughs> so still have a little bit of this old thinking in me, but at least at that time I had it. You know, I remember my mom came to visit once and with all these amazing things she did for me, you know, I was dressing in second hand all the time, you know, just to save money to send to her actually, or to save on my education or whatever. And she's like, oh, you know, you look like a bum. Like, why are you dressing in second hand? And I was very hurt, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not a thing in Russia. You don't do that. Yeah. You know, I was very hurt. I still remember it. Um, you know, and I was like, oh, damn, I didn't say anything. I'm like, well, I'm dressing in second hand to pay for a ticket to come visit me, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the good thing is um, back then in Chapel Hill, uh, I actually lived in a neighboring town, Carborough. I mean, that was completely hippie community, you know, everybody was like a hippie. So it was like dressing in second uh, hand and like uh, not shaving your legs was in vogue. So that was good. <laughs> so what were the best things that, that you acquired or saw or felt in, in these early years? Um, well, definitely friends. So I'm still friends with uh, some wonderful people from the medical school. And uh, some of those friends were life defining, like... Uh, one of the people I met there was a little bit older than everyone, and he went to Peace Corps, and he went to Peace Corps in Paraguay. He taught people how to be beekeepers there to help the economy, and he learned Spanish. And so his desire to help others for the first time made me think truly about other people rather than myself, because to that day, like I said, I had to think about myself. So, you know, I never had this concept of, like, volunteering, helping the poor, helping others. I was the poor, you know? Um, and so he really inspired me to think about uh, other people and to to learn Spanish as well for the medical purposes, um, uh, to eat better. He taught me healthy eating because, you know, in Russia, like it was just all healthy and organic to start with. And then in the United States, like I said, I gained 20 pounds because of the junk food. I mean, I didn't know about junk food and its dangers and yeah. all that bad stuff, you know? So I kind of like learned about healthy eating. Um, so I'm, I'm very yeah. grateful. I gained like not 20 pounds, but I think like 10 pounds in the first year I got here too. Yeah, I mean, when I came here, it's so funny. I mean, I thought it was okay to eat Pringles by like the box. So I ate like Pringles and cheesecake and chocolate chips. And I love chocolate, so I've never seen it like sold in sacks. So like buy an entire bag of chocolate chips and like eat a freaking bag of chocolate chips a day straight, you know? 
So that would do it. <laughs> so it was rice, beans, and chocolate chips. Well, no, that was, so chocolate chips were like the first year when I lived with my husband. So oh. like in, when I was in medical school, I had no money for chocolate chips or anything. It was like straight rice and beans. That was it. You know? Okay. <laughs> chocolate chips were only in the dream. Yeah. The chocolate chips, those, that, those times were behind, you know? <laughs> so, but you know what? My father sent me parcels. He sent me packages of chocolate. Now remember, he sent me parcels of porous chocolate. He sent me like 20 to 30 chocolates. Now remember, yes, so I had chocolate for breakfast. Oh my God, so, that's so sweet. Like he was sending you chocolate to America from Russia. From Russia, yes. <laughs> yeah. But at that point, things must have gotten a little bit better by that time. It was like, what, 2004? Not so great for him. It was okay. You know, honestly, I can't speak for it because uh, I was in the States and, you know, probably my parents wouldn't tell me too much or at least my father for sure. He's a stoic, but I know that for a while in the Soviet Union, at least at the times when I was leaving, I mean, he lost his job. So, I mean, he was living on three pieces of bread with spam on it for like over a year um, or margarine. I mean, that's all he had and like tea. So he still has this like, you know, the safe containers. So he still has like 40 containers from that margarine. So, wow. Yeah, I know. Right. Graphic, you know. So with your mom, um, when you left, how did your relationship evolve? Um, so I, I think that my mom, first of all, I think my mom was extremely happy because like I said, I think it was the goal of her life for me to leave Russia. Um, just because like I mentioned before, she had breast cancer when I was born, she didn't think she would live to my adulthood. And so she really wanted me to have all this opportunity. And I think she was just very relieved that that happened. And... Let me ask you this one second. Just mm -hmm. did you, did, did both of you live with the fear that something could happen with you with her um well i was her kid so i still think my mom will never die you know she's immortal for me but she lived with the fear that she would uh you know not survive and that she would you know she was very she always felt like she was very unhealthy and that she because someone you know like russian doctors told her that you know i think they told her that i don't know what exactly they told her but i know they, they told her enough for her to always you know fear for her life, you know, forever. And that's part of her anxiety and OCD and so forth. They also told her to not go, you know, to never tan and never go to the ocean or the sea, which is a load of baloney. And she loved it. So they like took away her like one thing she loved, you know, because they told her that, you know, UV light and, you know, will yeah. make her cancer come back, you know, like yeah. all these fairy tales, you know. Uh, so is that a fairy tale? Yeah, I mean, actually, breast cancer is associated with low vitamin D levels. So if anything, you probably want to be more sun exposed, you know, to have, get higher vitamin D levels. It's not causation, but there yes. is, you know, correlation in many cancers, you know. And so anyhow, so, yeah. You so... just like blew up, like blew my mind. <laughs> um, because my mom actually passed away from breast cancer mm -hmm. um, mm. uh, 13 years ago. And I grew up, the reason I'm asking you about if you had that fear is because I did grow up with that fear uh, because she was sick for a long time. And they did at one point tell me, like, they set us down, the doctors set us mm -hmm. down, and, you know, back to Russian, you know, um, culture. They, they set us down and they literally told us, uh, it was my dad, me and my grandma, not my mom. She was not mm -hmm. in the room. Uh, the doctor told us, your relative is doomed. Mm that's what he said that were his words mm -hmm. and I remember it made my dad so angry and he said we're all doomed yeah there's no such thing um and he, he was just so insensitive but like that 
fear of that moment coming and then you know it happening of course for me instilled the fear for for years and i actually have been avoiding sun mm. for years oh gosh no don't don't do that <laughs> <laughs> literally i live like in los angeles but i live vampire life yeah no you should go out and like sunbathe like skin cancer rarely kills anyone you know and boosting up your vitamin d levels is like good on for your health on many levels you know well, i'm getting into surfing with because there's no more salsa with this covid world so i'm getting into surfing so that should help with vitamin yeah. d right yeah you know sunscreen like reasonable sunscreen but you know but not like you don't have to avoid sun altogether so yeah. Yes. Well, that, that I got something, some some great medical advice out of this. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. You know, to the point where actually, like, sunburn is a um, it, the the worst. I guess it has more more of an impact when you're a kid because when you're a kid, it's it's literally like affecting your stem cells, right? Younger. So you know, mm. to be getting sun in the older age is not quite as bad as getting sunburned as a kid. Interesting. You know? Yeah. So now, actually, like you know, I, I sometimes go and intentionally get sunburned because I really like to feel the sunburned skin. You know, because then I'm like working, but I'm like, yeah, I went out and I'm like sunburned. You know, I feel the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> you know like i know i had fun and it lasts a week you know so it's like i intentionally under sunscreen a little bit you know not for the That's, bubbles but in the, right. a little bit you know just right. like a little bit of red you know and like you know the pleasant That's so sensation. funny so that's a funny thing um so i'm sorry so i i interrupted you so we were talking about how your relationship with your mom evolved um when well, you I left I think it got better because uh, we lived in a communal apartment in in one room, um, so it was extremely stressful because I was a teenager, you know, and then a young adult, and you know, it's stressful to live with anyone in just one small room, you know, and sharing everything. Um, so, like, I think that you know, in many cases, especially with mothers daughters, distance actually makes the relationship better because then you don't have this tension of, you know, sharing the same space and kitchen and whatever, but you just can talk on the phone about things that actually matter, you know, not mm -hmm. like dirty dishes or like with whom I spend the night, you know, but, you know, life and life and death and things like that. So, um, yeah. So to this day, I would say that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very good, you know, and I'm, I'm actually think that if we stay together there, it, it wouldn't have been good. Maybe I wouldn't, you know, eventually I would like stop talking to my mom, but now mm. we talk every day, you know, so. That's amazing. But, That's so great. Do you think that um, her, uh, her disease made an impact on your choice of your um, specialty in, in the field? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I became curious about oncology when I found out that my mom had breast cancer. And of course, initially, it was almost like a quest, you know, I'm going to um, oh, become a We're, physician. And I thought that I would go into breast Hello? cancer um, and into breast oncology. Um, but mm. I actually didn't oh, enjoy Yuri, breast cancer clinics very much. So it didn't really. Uh -huh, nah. mm -hmm. We got disconnected, like from yep. the whole from the beginning of your oh, okay. answer, we got cut off. Can you repeat? Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, so uh, my mom's uh, uh, breast cancer diagnosis definitely influenced my decision to become an oncologist. And I became curious about oncology when I learned and I realized that my mom had breast cancer. And of course, initially, it was a quest to become a physician. And I was thinking that I would go into breast oncology. Um, and, you know, potentially, of course, romantically thinking I would find a cure or contribute to, How old were you? Um, you know, being able to cure. Um, 
16. So when I got into medical school, mm -hmm. I, you know, that's when I kind of like solidified the fact that the knowledge that my mom had breast cancer because she never mm -hmm. openly told me that. Like I said, to this day, she's never told me I had breast cancer, right? So she only mentions it tangentially. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I, I told you the story about like, like our like moment when you know, she in the United States. I, I'm not sure. No, you didn't tell, tell, me, the tell me the story. No, 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 you didn't tell me, tell me the story. I was already in the United States and she was visiting me. And so I remembered that back in the Soviet Union, once a year, um, she took me to this place to get a bra. And it was really odd because I was thinking, why would she be going to some special place to get a bra? Well, now I understand that she was allocated like two, probably two free bras a year from like a special, um, you know, from a special supplier that were fit for uh, breast prosthesis. So now I understand that. Uh, but back then, I just remember waiting there, like sitting there and waiting in the waiting room. And I think sometimes like my mom had to bring me with her. So I knew it had to do with bras and her, you know, getting fit for a bra, but I didn't know what it was about. And so in the United States, when she was visiting, she's like, you know, Yulia, I have to go get a bra because I don't have a bra for me. And I realized that she was kind of reaching out because she realized that I probably knew that she needed a special bra. Uh, and I'm like, okay. So I was very happy. I was like, okay, let's go to the store. Let's find a good bra for you. You know? And, uh, um, so we went to just a general store, you know, because mm -hmm. they, they actually can use anyone and fit a prosthesis in. And so, um so we found some bras for her and she let me you know go into the dressing room with her and like she didn't say anything but you know she is like you know she was letting me like fit that prosthesis into the bra she was doing it in front of me so she was like, for the first time ever revealing that she didn't have one breast and so so she was putting that prosthesis into that new bra and then i'm like mom you have to put it this way sideways because she was pointing the little like a breast has a tail so like a little extension of a breast so she was kind of pointing it upward up and and i was like oh mom no you, it points to the side and she's like no 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 it should go this way i'm like no no mom it, it points to the side like that's the brain anatomy oh sorry breast anatomy and then she was like oh that's why it never fit that's not why it never looked right so you know and it's like i realized that for like 20 plus years they never fit that prosthetic you know breast into the bra correctly and so it always looked weird you know and that was the first person to fit it you know and put it in anatomically in a correct way you know and it was kind of like a, a beautiful moment but at the same time for me like very very uh heartbreaking because i realized just how lonely she was in that you know breast cancer mastectomy world Wow. But it's amazing that you got to have that moment with her. And, and um, even though like you, I'm gathering that there was no conversation about it. Yeah. So yeah, it's still like, you know, never a direct conversation. I think she was so scared all her life that she, she's never even said the word cancer in Russian. Never. She always calls it like cancera in Russian, like a, like a Latin word or like some pseudo English word, because I think like that, like, I, I think they just told her some terrible things. Like, I think she was told that she would not live to my, you know, third year yeah. birthday or something. Yeah. Wow. Your mom is a hero.
She she really is. <laughs> Miracle. So what was the biggest thing you got out of this out of this transition for you? Uh, I, I think that uh, just moving closer to becoming a person of the world. Once you move, you probably never acquire a true home. And that opens your mind, you know, that opens your mind to travels, that opens your mind to new cultures, to being flexible and understanding that's where I am, you know, because uh, I, I'm, I'm not stuck in my ways. So, you know, I can adapt uh, very easily to different ways, ways. Again, I'm not sure if I'm going to continue to be like that. A lot of times when you're older, you revert to being pretty conservative. Uh, but at least now I'm, I'm just so happy with all these experiences that I have, you know, learning Spanish alone and then traveling all over, eventually all over Central and South America, it's just beautiful. So I don't think that I would have been able to do all those travels and learn about all those cultures. And I wouldn't have been able to meet these thousands of people that I have met if I didn't learn, leave Russia. Uh, I, I'm still friends with my friends from Russia. I'm still friends with my friends whom I know from the age of six. And uh, now we'll reconvene with this uh, ecstatic joy, you know, of having gone through all this. You know, my story is not unique. So many people went through this and just being so happy with what we have, you know, and now just coming back to simplicity because I, I acquired wisdom, you know. So, you know, remember in Greek mythology, I, I never understood why they punished people with exile. You know, I always thought, what, what a strange punishment. Isn't it fun to travel? Why is the exile a punishment? But then really in my first year in the States, for second year, I felt like that punished, exiled Greek. I felt horrible and I knew there was no return. And I frequently thought of that. And I frequently thought of my new understanding of the most severe ancient Greek punishment. But then I also understand that through these travels, you acquire wisdom, which is another theme in, uh, in Greek mythology and, you know, in the... Odyssey and the Iliad and all the struggles. Uh, and so here I am, you know. Well, in mythology, the, the hero usually makes the way back too. Uh, well, I think the way back is, uh, a lot of times when they make their way back, it's like some kind of mess, you know, they marry like their mom, you know, or kill their dad or, you know, some other weird thing, as you remember, or get killed like Jason by the prow of their ship, you know. So that's, I think you don't come back. That's the thing. Don't come back and try to, you know, reestablish yourself. It's not going to happen. You know, so <laughs> I, I like it. I love it. <laughs> I learned better, you know. So no, I'm not coming back for my Eurydice. You know, I'm not coming back for my old loves. No, I really, I'm very happy with just um, understanding that I don't need stuff at all. You know, back then I really so coveted the stuff because I felt like that was the symbol of success. And now I realize that actually not at all. You know, I want to dump all my stuff. I wish I could now have kids, you know. So I'm planning in my head how I'm going to get rid of all this stuff eventually and uh, be free, you know, have as little as possible of material possessions and, uh, you know, continue my life, you know, being content. And I have a luxury, so I'm very grateful because I have financial comfort um, and I have the peace of mind, uh, partial peace of mind. So now I have a luxury of thinking about not just people, but also our planet and uh, doing some work for it. So I think that's the continuation. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. I, I was looking up things and two things jumped at me, uh, monarch butterfly and bats. What, tell me about this. Yeah, my background is biology and my bachelor's degrees in biology to this day, I pride myself in being a biologist and having good biology knowledge. And, and so, you know, even in my childhood, I was shocked by the destruction of the planet. I mean, I remember that from the age of five, I remember reading about the red book, you know, and the endangered species list and, and being very sad about that, understanding that deeply. So now, because I have a luxury of financial comfort and uh, profession where 
I can go to work and be happy because I'm going to do something good every day. I can think about other creatures. I chose a couple of things that I can do. One is uh, helping the monarch butterflies uh, who are becoming extinct. Mm -hmm. So in California, we planted the monarch garden, uh, the milkweed garden. Uh, for their breeding, which was quite successful. We had a lot of caterpillars and generations of monarch. Uh, and here in Florida, we already planted uh, milkweed as well. And uh, so I'm just trying to promote the cause, like, you know, telling little kids at schools about the monarchs and just even posting it on Facebook, you know, for people to know. I mean, I'm, I'm all about that. Like, what do you do? Very easy. So whenever you have a chance to have a garden, make sure to plant native plants that are nectar plants so that butterflies have feeder plants, also bees, uh, and also some milkweed. Native milkweed is better because uh, monarch caterpillars only feed on and lay their eggs on milkweed. And so that way, monarchs will have more of a habitat uh, and will have a chance for recovery. Because unfortunately, of course, we destroyed most of the wild milkweed uh, population and consequently monarch. Uh, so monarch is actually is very special because what happens is that it migrates from the north of the United States all the way to Mexico, but it doesn't migrate as one butterfly. It migrates to the next state, lays eggs, becomes caterpillar, the next butterfly, and so forth. But then the very last generation of the butterflies that flies to Mexico is different. It's a butterfly that lives, I, I can't say precisely, but about 10 times longer than the previous ones uh, and is very strong. So it flies across the ocean to Mexico. So And it's the same genetic creature. So imagine what a mystery. How is that possible? Epigenetics, right? So same DNA, but different genes are open and closed. So imagine if we knew these genes, I mean, imagine the knowledge of that creature would help us maybe create superhumans who would go to Mars, you know, and I'm a biologist. So I'm saying it is not impossible. So it's crucial to save these creatures because they, uh, they carry a great mystery of existence. So that's why I'm a big fan. And, you know, I try to promote their cause. Thank you for telling me about this. I'm really excited about this. This is interesting. There was um, in Los Angeles uh, a couple months ago, a month ago, was around Halloween, there was Day of the Dead, mm -hmm. and it, which is celebrated widely in Los Angeles. Um, do people celebrate in Miami? I don't know yet. I don't think that much because we don't have too many people from Mexico. Right. It's more, more Cuban, right? Yeah, more Cuban. Right. So here, Day of the Dead is big, as you know. And uh, this year at Hollywood Forever, the cemetery, they did uh, Day of the Dead, but it was connected with the immigrant issue. Mm -hmm. And monarch butterflies were a theme. Mm -hmm. Girls dressed as butterflies and, you know, they went all out. It's so beautiful. And uh, my plan is next year totally to turn into a monarch. Yep, and now you know the story, so they're very special. Now I know the story, yeah. Now I understand why, because I knew they migrated, but I didn't know that, first of all, I didn't realize that it's not one butterfly migrating, mm -hmm. it's actually a dynasty moving back and forth, mm -hmm. which is crazy. What makes them go? Uh, that we don't know. I mean, likely, I mean, at least for the compass, it's likely electromagnetic field. Uh, like in birds and maybe butterflies, they have the special proteins that actually like orient themselves according to electromagnetic field of the earth. And that's how they know the direction. It's kind of crazy. So it's like they have literally built-in compass. Right. So that like makes them go. Uh, maybe also like some kind of like temperature gradient, maybe some smells. I don't know. Mm. Because I remember like in Russia, we get the birds who come for the winter or the birds who leave for the winter. So you know that it has to do with the climate. So I was wondering if that's a similar thing with the monarch butterfly. Yeah, yeah. So the probably sense like the climate, maybe the pollen concentration. So who knows, you know, the angle of the sun. Wow, so cool. All right. So tell me about the bats now. I like to, I guess, uh, take under my wing the creatures most ignored and hated. And so I don't even remember how it started with bats. I think that uh, actually my life partner, Scott, read about the bats and we started talking and researching them. Maybe we watched a documentary and we're like, oh my gosh, they're amazing creatures. And then we bought a book by a bat researcher. His name is, don't remember the first name. His last name is Tuttle. And he is so cool. He is like a real Batman. Like he, since his little young age, he loved bats. And like in high school, he actually did bat research that was like accepted as some kind of like university thesis, 
you know, and so as a high school kid. So I read his book about bats and I just realized just how essential they were to our world, like the most numerous mammals. I don't know if you knew, but they're the most numerous species of mammals. They have one pup at a time. They live for decades and they're actually more related to dogs than they're related to mice. So they're not flying mice. Uh, they're exceptionally smart, you know, all the senses, the echolocation, you know, of course, and the ability to maneuver in the air is tremendous. So again, they have this huge biological mystery of being able to be so agile. Um, and, uh, you know, and they, they just, they're, they're pollinators, they're seed dispersers. They, one bat eats at least, I think it's a pound of, mus of uh, insects a, a year, at least. So the natural pest control. Uh, and people have all these stupid misconceptions about them, you know, so I thought that I uh, would pick up the cause of bats and promote it. So we became uh, members of the Bat Conservation Society and we donate to them. And, you know, I went to like kids school and talked about bats. So we had this all the fact reveal, you know, and all this, um, you know, things that are misconceptions uh, debunked. Um, so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that's my bat cause. So Plus they're awfully cute. You know, there's some bats that are so cute. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I looked them up and I certainly it's it's it they're they're not as cute as koalas well but no um, look up ectophila alba it's a white bat uh, from puerto rico so ectophila alba this is very cute okay i'll start with that i'll start <laughs> with that so okay now we figured out what bats and butterflies contribute going back to humans there's a lot of negative talk about immigrants and immigration issue. Mm. Do you have a feeling that with all that, something has changed for you? Um, so, no, I don't think anything changed for me. Luckily, with the immigration uh, issues, you know, I'm very lucky, I have to say, in some perverted way to not be a person of color. So I blend in. I, people have always, American people have always been more curious about Russians. I've never encountered any animosity whatsoever. Even in the, the southern United States, I really never encountered animosity. Uh, my uh, life partner probably would say because I'm a cute girl, you know. Likely, <laughs> Likely contribute to that. Yeah, but that's what he says. He's like, you know, Yule, your whole life experience is completely different from even my life experience as a white American male, you know. So who am I to say anything? Um, so not really, but, you know, I'm just very proud, you know, to represent uh, immigrants because I think that my story is just part of uh, millions of stories and I love to share it because most people come here with the similar aspirations to mine. They don't come here to fail. They come here to succeed. You know, and success can be defined in different ways. For some people, success is supporting their family. For other people, it's success of just having a stable life and having stuff, you know, having the TV and the toaster and whatever, you know, a clean apartment. For other people, the success is having the kids being in a, at a safe place. But we all come here for a better life. And I think most, most of us work very hard towards it. What do you think is the biggest thing that you personally contribute being an immigrant? Well, I, I think that uh, I, I'm very happy that, uh, first of all, I was able to live my professional dream. I am a physician and uh, here I'm able to practice medicine at its best. I am able to use all my scientific knowledge and have all the resources and I use them joyfully because I know that at many places and back in Russia, we don't have those resources. I'm happy to be a physician, a healer in this society, but also as an immigrant, I understand my immigrant patients so much better. Um, so, for example, you know, there's such notion as a difficult patient. And a lot of times it's job interviews, resident interviews. I was asked, how do you approach a difficult patient? And I always said, you know, there's no such as a thing as a difficult patient for me. And it's really true. I'm not lying. There is no difficult patient. Um, you know, all this, the difficulty the doctor may have. It, what people need when they say difficult patient? Well, so sometimes, you know, some patients are demanding. Other patients don't follow recommendations or are inconsistent. 
Others may be, um, you know, are very probing, you know, potentially litigious. But uh, I really just uh, approach everyone with an open heart and I just try to understand why they appear to be difficult. I don't even treat it as a difficult patient. Like I said, I'm an oncologist. My patients have cancer, you know, so I never ever allow myself to think there is anything wrong with them. They're difficult or whatever, you know, so I always try to understand where they come from, why they, they are the way they are and try to, besides cancer, to see whether I can reach out to their past and maybe heal and remedy what's causing their present anxiety that's manifested by the facade of maybe the appearing difficult. Um, so, and definitely immigrant patients, Spanish speaking patients, I mean, we speak the same language. It was so beautiful when I had, uh, had these patients who came to me for a second opinion and they ended up staying with me. And I said, well, you know, that other place is amazing. But, you know, why, why didn't you stay with them? Or, you know, I said, you know, you don't have to be with me. And they were Spanish speaking and they said, they looked in my eyes and they said, you know, doctor, we speak the same language and we understand you, you know, and that was just so beautiful. And then in Los Angeles, I took care of a lot of uh, older Russian patients. I would say maybe 25% of my patients were Russian pensioners. And that was beautiful because again, they came to me, they, they didn't have too many other doctors who could help them. And I could understand their, again, they would be described as extremely difficult. Come on, Russian patients have their own opinion. They bring, you know, their own and their spouse's meds and they just take whatever, whenever they feel like it. You know, they have their own opinions about the causes of everything, you know, but I understand that again. And I never had issues with them. My, my immigrant experience definitely contributes to being a better physician uh, for immigrants, but only for, not only for immigrants, for American people as well, because they say, well, it's all about immigrants. What about the people who are from here? Well, the same way, you know, same way. I, I try to understand them and relate to them. And I lived in so many places in the US and I love my uh, American patients. We have a ton in common, you know, when I'm with them, I'm a girl from North Carolina. You know, I'm a girl from DC. I live in Washington, DC you know, or a lay girl, whatever I am, you know, I can relate to them. You're, you're a girl from all over the world. <laughs> you connect with everyone. That's, I, yeah. I think it's beautiful that you, you've acquired that ability. I agree with you very much that it is that immigrant experience of being an alien, being exiled, that forces you to get out of your head mm -hmm. and try to connect yeah. with everybody on a human level. Yeah. And I think that's the most beautiful thing there is, yeah. honestly, in the world. Yeah. So what do you think people should know about Russia that people don't know? <laughs> well, let's say modern Russia, modern Russia. I think they should know that Russia is not this scary place. Even I myself, honestly, was brainwashed by American media that Russia is just this kind of, you know, I was envisioning like being arrested for nothing at the customs and, you know, maybe getting a food poisoning somewhere and, you know, maybe, I don't know, getting mugged or something. And uh, mostly political things, I guess. I was like kind of concerned, you know, I, I thought that maybe there were like some presence of like, Putin's militia, or I don't even know what. I, I have no right to say, just all rumors, all from press and <laughs> falsehood. You know, of course, there are a lot of political issues in Russia, but I went back to Russia. It was amazing. Customs were like, they were the nicest people in the world. You know, didn't give me any trouble. All my, my life partner, American life partner, and people are just so sweet. They're so soft spoken and pleasant and polite and um, well behaved in general. Uh, the food is good. You know, it's just a wonderful place. I mean, it's, it's, it's not scary and it's not much different from any other Eastern European country, you know, like, you know, maybe Czech Republic or Hungary. I mean, it's different. It's a different country, but still it's, it's peaceful, beautiful, cultured, uh, safe. And, um, you know, we just should stop uh, treating Russia like something like so alien and different, you know, and we also have very similar history, like the history of depression here in the United States is very similar to the crisis we had to live through. Um, you know, if you dig into how we lived, you know, we lived similarly, like my, my life partner is American and it's like, we had similar childhoods, 
we have differences, but those differences are very superficial. You know, in general, you know, we're just people very similar. And I think at both places, all people want is just to love, you know, <laughs> they just want to love and have friends and Russian people are no different. True. True. So, uh, any lingering thoughts? Um, well, just, I, I, I can see you're, you're getting emotional now again. Is it? What, what is it? Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about Russia. <laughs> you know, I do, I do miss it. Like thinking about my friends and like, I, you made me remember all the, all the little moments there, you know, so I'm, I get emotional thinking about them. <laughs> it's interesting that you said love that thing about like wanting wanting love and wanting happiness i don't know we talked about suffering right mm -hmm. i felt like russians never search for happiness yeah you know that's true but i think search for happiness also doesn't necessarily make you happy you know because then you're like always searching for something else like in american culture and now it's penetrating the russian culture you know they're always like showing this perfectly happy house with this perfectly healthy you know smiling kids and mom and it's all like ideal and she's like spraying some toxic chemical on the counter to disinfect it you know and then like people think that's how it should be and that's happiness and then like it actually makes you miserable because it's never like that the kids are always screaming kitchen is never that clean you know and the relationship is never without rough edges. So I think that uh, search for happiness is cool. It's like, it's a good place to start at. But then when you realize that, like, just stop searching, you know, the miracle of existence, man, you know, that's what it is, just be, you know, uh, so it's good to search. Uh, but, you know, with, through all these travels, like I'm just grateful for just being. And actually that was one of those beautiful things I realized when I went back to St. Petersburg this past summer. You know, I came there and I was so happy with my friends. I slept, ate whatever, you know, just like basic foods, didn't care for any fancy restaurants or anything. All I had was just my friend's love, you know, and lived a very basic Airbnb, like not that comfortable. Right. And I was like, you know what? Like now I know that like I always have a place, you know, I always have a place like where I'm just loved and like I would be happy with just as, like some place to sleep. Like I, I will need a bed that, that I will need a bed. That's it. You know, but the rest just doesn't really matter at all, you know? So in a way, you did make your comeback as a Greek hero. Yeah, I guess in a way I did. I guess in a way I did. I didn't stay there. <laughs> because okay. I think that, you know, because it could probably, it would probably like crash and burn again. But, you know, but, but at least I have that place in my heart, you know? Uh, and, and it's just giving me a lot of peace. Uh, I mean, I would need a couple of other things, like a library. So, yeah, so I think just the beauty of existing, the beauty of things around you. Uh, is probably sufficient after a certain journey. So you managed to make peace with it, with that home and that beautiful place to be out there. Yes, out there, because I, I realized that uh, I, I'm still important to my friends there, because like I said, they were always such a huge part of my life. And just knowing that they are still my brothers and sisters and I'm relevant there, I guess it's that sensation of being relevant to your homeland, you know, that there is someone there caring about you was important you know, as it may be equally important for them to know I care about them, you know, like I have a lot of people who live vicariously through what I have here and Facebook and all that. And I think it gives them a lot of joy, you know, versus it gives me a lot of joy to see their pictures of the like, morning dew at their dacha, you know, like some part of homemade preserves that gives me that beautiful connection and continuity. Yeah. All right. The last question, what advice would you give to, you can choose either yourself or somebody who's coming to the States now? Um, you know, I think, again, this is more of advice that comes from my grand age of 42 now, is that what I didn't realize is that time fixes a lot of things, you know, probably even if I stayed in Russia and I didn't come to the States, within 20 years of living there, I would have been okay, you know, and that's what my parents did not teach me, you know, because like I said, they taught us to envy and want everything now, now, now. As a young person, you just want everything now, now, now. And because you don't have everything now, 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 you know, you don't have that fancy car right now, or you don't have that apartment or house, you're like miserable. 
and it feels like you'll never have it. But I was like, if you work hard, and if you are true to what you love, you know, love money, you're true to like making that money, you know, you love medicine, you're true to becoming an amazing doctor, you know, love sweeping floors and cleanliness, and you are doing that, you know, with great zeal and, and conscientiously, you are going to be okay. That's my advice. You're going to be fine and be true to yourself. And if working hard is not being true to yourself, you are already okay, probably. You know? <laughs> so. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. So, all right. Thank you, Sasha. This is beautiful. <laughs> really, I really appreciate it. Spoken Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs>